The following sermon was delivered on February 21st, 2021 at Antioch Presbyterian Church, a mission work of Calvary Presbytery of the Presbyterian Church in America, located in Woodruff, South Carolina. Organizing pastor Dr. Joseph A. Piper Jr. preached this sermon entitled The Mystery of the Incarnation on 1 Timothy 3.16. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit AntiochPCA.com or contact us at info at AntiochPCA.com. May the Lord bless you as you receive gracious instruction from His Word. Well, there are many wonderful and mysterious things in the world. And I imagine that you young people have, at least in school, studied something about some of the seven or eight wonders of the world. Uh, the Egyptian pyramids, the, the Great Wall uh, in uh, China. Uh, these things that men have made that are quite remarkable. And you wonder how in the world pre-computers and calculators, you know, that they, they made things like this. The Colosseum in Rome that actually had seas that would come up and, and go down and have sea battles. Uh, are the natural wonders of the world in our own land, uh, Mount McKinley, Denali, uh, Yosemite, the Grand Canyon, remarkable things that fill us with awe and wonder at these mysteries. But friends, tonight... Uh, we're going to consider the most glorious mystery that has ever been revealed to the human race. And that is the mystery of the incarnation, that God himself took to himself a human nature and came in order to save us as the God-man. Paul calls it, as we see, a, a glorious mystery unto godliness. Now, our text, which is the last verse of 1 Timothy uh, chapter 3, um, wraps up the second section of this letter. In chapter 1, remember Paul's writing to Timothy. He's left him in Ephesus to uh, deal there with the church, to get it better situated, to deal with false teaching. In chapter 1, he deals with the false teaching. It also reminds us the goal of all gospel teaching is love for God and our neighbor from a pure hearts and good consciences and sincere faith. In chapters 2 and 3, he deals with the structure, the life of the church itself, uh, corporate worship and the church's desire to see all men come to Christ, uh, the roles of, of some men in worship and the roles of women in the life of the church, and then the roles of men, particularly elders and deacons in the life of the church, the qualifications in chapter 3 which he comes into what we saw two weeks ago, verses 14 and 15, this description of the church herself, the church that, that we are, that the household of God, the temple of God, and the pillar and support of truth. So he ends this section in verse 16 with a declaration of that truth, the most glorious part of the treasure that has been given to the church in our text. By common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. He who was revealed in the flesh was vindicated in the spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. We see here the church's message. We see this treasure that's been entrusted to us, that the church is to proclaim, to make known the glorious mystery of the exalted incarnate Christ. That's what Paul's showing you here. We as a church are to make known this, this glorious, this exalted mystery of God incarnate. 
We'll consider two things. The mystery, or the glorious mystery of the Incarnation, and the great message of the Incarnation. We'll begin this little opening statement, that first line, by common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. And when Paul writes by common confession, he's not talking about a confession of faith as we would understand it in our confession of faith or something like the Apostles' Creed. No, it's more like saying it is confessedly true. He's saying it is beyond a shadow of doubt. There's no wiggle room here. There's no place to doubt this. This is the corner piece because Christ is the cornerstone. This is the cornerstone of this church that is the pillar and support of of God's word and truth. And it must be accepted. If you're a Christian, you must be accepting the very statement that Paul says here about the incarnation. The word incarnation simply means in the flesh. And the God, the Son, the second person of the Godhead, came and took to himself a human nature. And as the God-man became the mediator and the atoner of his people. So Paul says there's no shadow of doubt, there's no wiggle room here, that this is by common confession. Confessedly true, and what is confessedly true? Well, it is that this mystery is great. Now, the Bible, particularly the Apostle Paul, often uses this word mystery. And that might be a mystery to you. What does Paul mean by mystery? He doesn't mean by mystery what we often think of as mystery. My wife and I enjoy uh, British mysteries and detective stories. No, it's not that kind of mystery. Nor is it a kind of mystery that is uh, uh, just a mysterious uh, kind of twilight zone thing that, uh, or something that's kept for, for a few special people. No, the mystery is, has to do with God's revelation. The mystery is what God throughout the centuries, progressively revealed to his church. I think the most succinct statement of what Paul means by mystery is found in Romans chapter 16, verses 25 to 27. This is a doxology. It's often confused, and you'll hear it as a benediction. It's not a benediction. This is a a doxology, a praise that's offered to God because of this mystery of the gospel. Now to him, remember that's how doxologies begin. We had one back in chapter 1. Now to him who's able to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery which has been kept secret for long ages past, but now is manifested. And by the scriptures of the prophets, according to the commandment of the eternal God, has been made known to all the nations, leading to the obedience of faith. To the only wise God, through Jesus Christ, be the glory forever and ever. Now you see the doxological format. It starts in that third person, now to him. Then there's this parenthesis about the mystery of the gospel, by which God does establish us and keep us. But this is not a blessing. It's a doxology. It concludes then, to the only wise God, through Jesus Christ, be glory forever. Amen. But notice then, that this... God keeps us by the gospel according to the revelation of the mystery which has been kept secret for long ages past. There's the key. The mystery deals with the progressively slow unfolding of the truth of God's word, particularly the truth that God would come in the flesh as the God-man, redeem not just Jews but Gentiles and bring all into union with Christ Jesus. Now, 
Once we begin to see the lights come on in the New Testament, we can go back to the Old Testament and we begin to see the unfolding of the mystery, even as we see, for example, in Isaiah chapter 7. And that's why Paul adds here through the scriptures of the prophets. And so it was, it was revealed in the Old Testament in a shadowy form, in types and enigmatic prophecies and such things as that. But it was only as the Savior himself came that the lights came on. Perhaps you've seen those uh, artists do those uh, chalk talks where they're up there and they're scribbling away on the chalkboard and suddenly they turn the, the ultraviolet light on and there's a whole picture you couldn't even imagine. That's what this mystery is. It's there. It's all laid out uh, in the Old Testament. But it's when the full light of the Spirit through Christ shines in the New Testament that the glory of who the Messiah is first prophesied in Genesis 3.15 that there would be this mysteriously provided seed of a woman who would destroy Satan. And this progressively and slowly unfolded. It was actually under the Davidic covenant that his deity begins to be manifested, as we see, for example, in Isaiah chapter 7. But this is the great mystery that you and I sit here tonight, and we've got the whole book. We've got this fantastic revelation. Now, it remains a mystery because God's incomprehensible. And yet we understand it. We can state it. But notice it's a mystery unto godliness. Now, I like to do theology. Obviously, I better had nice since I teach theology. And my mind is stretched with theology the way a, a chemist's mind might be stretched by chemical equations or a physicist by great mysteries in uh, that realm. And it's great. Theology does stretch your mind. Learning the catechism has mental benefits for you boys and girls, not just spiritual benefits. But notice, it must always be unto godliness. It's a great problem in many of our churches today. There's a lot of head knowledge. A lot of people who can rattle off the catechism and talk about the various ins and outs of, uh, of theology as, as we believe it, as is confessed in our, our confession. But it must always be unto godliness. Truth in the Bible is never an end in itself. You need to understand this. Never. Truth that we learn in the Bible is to bring us to love and worship the holy triune God. So cultivate that. As you develop habits, boys and girls, of reading your Bible in the morning, now don't just check off your list. Don't just learn some facts. But try as you read your Bible, all of you here, to come to this place of worship. Turn what you read into prayers of confession and adoration and petition and supplication. The mystery is indeed great, but it produces godliness. And that's where Paul began, remember, in chapter 1, verse 5, the end of our instruction, love. Love. That's what we want, to love God, to love our neighbor. So that's the, the glorious mystery of the Incarnation. But that's unpacked then in what I'm calling the great message of the Incarnation. So in the rest of this verse, Paul unpacks for us exactly what he means by the Incarnation. And these six lines are perhaps the most intricate piece of poetry in the New Testament. It is a liturgical statement, either repeated by the church or sung as a hymn 
by the church. It's a remarkable piece of poetry. You can see some of that uh, even in the English. But in the Greek, we've got uh, uh, three couplets with six lines. Every line of the six lines has exactly the same grammatical construction. And then you have this going from uh, heaven to earth, heaven to earth, heaven and heaven, or earth to heaven in the last couplet. And he unpacks here for us in this poetic way the full-orbed gospel. So we have in the first couplet, uh, uh, salvation provided. We have in the second couplet, salvation published. And in the third couplet, salvation perfected. So let's undo or unpack this liturgical statement, this hymn, under these three headings. Because this is the message that we believe and we want to tell others. So the first couplet is salvation provided. He who was, and in your New King James Bible, or King James Bible, it uses the text that I prefer here, God who was revealed in the flesh. Now it says the same thing. The he is a reference to the second person of the Godhead. It's just that the New King James makes that uh, clear beyond a shadow of doubt. But the he, or the God who was revealed in the flesh, was vindicated in the spirit. It's a very simple statement, isn't it? And the word revealed is not really the best word either. It's manifested. The word, uh, he who was manifested in the flesh. And this is simply uh, Paul's way of saying here what he says, for example, in Galatians chapter 4, that in the fullness of time God sent forth his Son. Manifest in the flesh means that the, the eternal Son of God came down and took to himself a true human nature. As our catechism uh, teaches us about uh, our Savior, and it says that uh, Christ, the Son of God, became man. A shorter catechism, 22. How did Christ, being the Son of God, become man? He became the Son of God. The Son of God became man by taking himself a true body and a reasonable soul, being conceived by the power of the Holy Ghost in the womb of the Virgin Mary and born of her yet without sin. That's what this means to be manifested in the flesh, to take to himself a true human nature. But this is God who did this, the eternal second person of the Godhead. As the Holy Spirit created a human nature in the womb of the Virgin Mary, the Son took that nature unto himself. Joined together, again, as our catechism says, the only Redeemer of God's elect is the Lord Jesus Christ, who being the eternal Son of God became man, and so was and continues to be God and man in two distinct natures, a human nature and a divine nature, and one person forever. This is what, what John says in the prologue, that the word that he's already defined as the eternal Son of God became flesh, and we beheld his glory, the glory as the only begotten of the Father. Now you see, just that one little piece of the mosaic, that one piece of the puzzle, that one piece of the mystery, uh, the mind boggles. You could spend the rest of your life just meditating on this. The second person of the Godhead took to himself a human nature in such a manner that he was one person with two natures. But that was absolutely necessary, you see, because we needed a, a suitable substitute. He had to be, he had to, he'd have a human nature. 
It was men and women, boys and girls that sinned and were headed to hell. And we needed a Savior who was like us in that regard, yet without sin. And yet he had to be a sufficient Savior. A mere man couldn't do this. A mere man couldn't live for 33 years and die on a cross and be buried and rise from the dead and save anybody but maybe one other person. You see, it took the divine, infinite, eternal second person of the Godhead. This is what it means in the simple words. God was manifested in the flesh. Now, in the flesh, he was condemned in his human nature. Condemned by the church, condemned by the state, condemned as a blasphemer, as a a rabble-rouser, crucified in that condemnation. And that's why the second part of the first couplet is so important, that he who was manifested in the flesh was vindicated, and perhaps you got a footnote, justified in the spirit. Now, the church used this word justified here because if he had been left dead, this is a reference to the resurrection, being justified by the spirit. If he'd been left dead, all that men said about him would have been true, right? He was justly put to death at the hands of the state and the church. And in fact, we know he was guilty because uh, the guilt of our sin was imputed to him as he hanged on that cross. But in his resurrection, this is what this is a reference to, vindicated by the Spirit. In his resurrection, God did two things. In the first place, he justified his son. He said he's not guilty. He suffered for guilty sinners. And he he satisfied that. So I accept what he's done, but I'm declaring now him to be innocent. But then, in his justification, is your justification. Remember what justification means. It means that God has pardoned all your sins and constituted you legally righteous in his sight forevermore. And so Paul will say that he was delivered up for our transgressions. There he is on Calvary's cross. He was raised for our justification. His justification is your justification. And what we have now, you see, in this two-line couplet is the entire work of redemption. This is why I say that this is redemption provided. That he who is in the flesh, obviously being vindicated, that all is included in that then, his suffering, his dying, his burial, and his resurrection is justified by the Spirit in order to accomplish the salvation of his people. That's the gospel. In two six, uh, two lines, two couplets in this great liturgical statement. Salvation provided. That's what it is through this most remarkable incarnation. Next we have the uh, uh, salvation or redemption published. Again, he is seen by angels and proclaimed among the nations, just as we went from heaven to earth in the first couplet we do here as well. Now, angels had the privilege of ministering throughout his birth. It was the angel Gabriel who announced to Mary that she would conceive a son. Angels uh, uh, ministered to Joseph, the unfolding of the gospel, the application of Isaiah 7, as you read there in in Matthew uh, chapter 1. Angels uh, ministered to the Savior. Angels announced his birth. Uh, 
they did many things in his ministry. But you remember, it's Peter who tells us that the, they didn't really know what was going on. <laughs> this mystery uh, was a mystery to them. And they were looking again through a glass very darkly as well. Uh, you know, I, I imagine sometimes what it was like that as, as Christ was being mistreated, that in, in a sense, the, the Holy God had to hold them back. You remember what he said? That, you know, the Father could send two legions of angels right now and rescue me. And they were wondering, why isn't he? You know, wondering the way John the Baptist was wondering, what's going on here if you're the Messiah? But then, when he ascended into heaven, what a day, what a parade, what glory. For suddenly, it was all clear. And he was surrounded by this heavenly host of whom he was the captain. And they were cheering and applauding and glorying. He was seen by angels. We see an example of their publishing then his praise in Revelation chapter 5. Revelation 5, he's unfolded there as the Lamb who is worthy to execute the decrees of God on behalf of the church. And uh, he's praised by the, by the elders. And then we read in verse 11, and Then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne and the living creatures and the elders and the number of them as myriads of myriads, ten thousands of ten thousands and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And every created thing which is in heaven and on earth and under the earth and, and on the sea and all things in them, I heard saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. And the four living creatures kept saying, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. Is that not what Paul has in mind when he says he was beheld by angels? That great cacophony, that symphony, that chorus of, of praise that goes on day after day now in the courts of heaven as it all becomes clear to them what he was doing. But as they're beholding him, beholding him in his glory, what's happening now on earth? This is where we come into the picture, you see, because as that's happening, it says he's proclaimed among the nations. Now we're back to the church, the pillar and support of truth, the house, the temple of the living God. This is the message that God has given to his church to proclaim and to proclaim to the ends of the earth. That's the mystery. It's not just Jews brought into the relationship with this divine Savior. No, it's Gentiles as well. It's the nations of the earth. And the church has been given this great privilege and responsibility to go now and publish this gospel, this great mystery. You know, it's, it's well, the mind just boggles. This is what the Spirit uses to capture the attention of, of, uh, of men and women. Uh, Jocelyn and I, a couple others, are taking Latin. And the third reader they were into now this, this last week is this Christian, Roman Christian girl starts talking about the Savior. And it was, just, it was interesting because it struck me in such a way is that as these pagans were hearing her, how this sounded. It was... It's quite remarkable in their ears as she started talking about the, the various glorious works of, of the Savior. And that's what we get to do. And it's, it's amazing. The little things will be often what attracts a person's attention. Begin to get them wondering about this glorious God who is our God and, and whom we serve.
This is what we're about as a church, and, and this is why it's actually called uh, the, the primary mark of a true church is that we hold to the gospel. And chapter 25 of the Confession, the Catholic Church hath been sometimes more... Now understand, the Catholic Church is not the Roman Catholic Church. And you'll never hear me talk about the Catholic Church if I'm talking about the Roman Catholic Church. They are not a church. They claim to be a church. We are the Catholic Church. This Catholic Church hath been sometimes more, sometimes less visible. And particular churches, which are members thereof, are more or less pure according as the doctrine of the gospel is taught and embraced. Ordinances administered and public worship performed more or less purely in them. That first mark, the gospel taught and embraced, that is the church. If the church is publishing this grand message of the incarnate Savior, then she manifests herself to be a true church. If she denies that message or she uh, ignores that message or doesn't believe that message, then she's not a church. Regardless of what denomination she belongs to, she's not a church. And so this redemption provided is to be a redemption that is published. Then the last couplet teaches us that it is also a redemption perfected. He is believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Now, one other part of the parallels here is you notice that the first couplet begins with his humiliation. We come now to his exaltation. He is believed on in the world, but now rather than moving from heaven to earth, as the other two do, we move from earth to heaven. But now there's a perfection because he's believed on in the world. He's exalted up on high. And the Father said to him, Ask of me, and I will give you many nations as your inheritance. Revelation, we read that it's every tribe and tongue and people and nation that are coming to Christ. But it's what's interesting, even in Paul's day, he could say he's been believed on in the world. The gospel had, had permeated the known world, the civilized world by that time and had done so with great victory so that in a matter of 300 years, um, the Christian faith had basically at that point become uh, the conqueror of the Roman Empire. Uh, it's quite a remarkable thing. This little handful in Jerusalem of 120. A lot of others scattered around Galilee and other places up in the north, but uh, yeah, the gospel was believed on in the world. And that's happening today, you see. This is the confidence that we have. This is why our, our dear friends here, we go labor in Colombia uh, in difficult circumstances because they, they are possessors of this fantastic gospel message that uh, uh, he came in the flesh. He's vindicated by the Spirit. He's beheld by angels, and they proclaimed him in Colombia. We proclaim him, you see. We proclaim him by our lives. You proclaim him in those conversations you have with your friends. And you proclaim him through the work of the church as you pray and give and labor alongside. As we'll go door to door, as we will have our public worship and other things that we do. We proclaim this gospel with a confidence, though. This is the difference. The reason that I'm here is I just believe in the power of the gospel. I believe that all these, have you all been down that direction? There's a whole new subdivision going in. 
50, 70, 100 houses, no church. We're there. We're the first ones there. And we'll be there. Praying, pleading with God. Christ will be believed on. He'll build his church. The guarantee of that is the last part of this couplet where we're told that he now is taken up in glory. See, he is exalted on high. He's the King of kings and Lord of lords. He's orchestrating all of this from the Father, by the Spirit, going forth now, conquering and to conquer, as he's pictured there in Revelation with that sword in his mouth, riding victor over his enemies, gathering his elect unto himself. What a great project to be a part of, huh? That's what we're about. But it's guaranteed, because he is exalted on high. He is seated at the right hand of the majesty on high. He's going to come again to bring all things to himself and hand them over to the Father. Now his being there is also a further perfection of this because it is the perfection of your being there. You see, he's there as your person in heaven. Because of your union with him, you're already seated with him in some mysterious way in heaven. His being in heaven is the guarantee that you will be in heaven. His glorification is the guarantee of your glorification. It is a salvation perfected all through this glorious mystery of the incarnation. I trust that you are all the more convinced of what Paul says. It is confessedly true. Great is the mystery of godliness. But what's so wonderful is you don't have to have had algebra 1 and 2 and geometry to begin to understand this mystery. I'd never understand it. Uh, you see, because this is God's mystery, boys and girls, little boys and girls, 2 and 3 and 4, can begin to confess that Jesus is my Savior, that he's, he's God who is a man. Now, that doesn't mean you understand it, but you can confess it. This is a mystery we grow up with then in the covenant household. It's a grand thing that God's placed you there to learn this mystery. And it's something on which we all can meditate. And it's just the window on God. There's, there's no more wonderful window. And that's why the Son came to reveal the Father. There's no greater window on who God is than this mystery, you see. Here's God's wisdom. How a triune God could uh, be just and the justifier of sinners. <laughs> He who swore that the sinner shall die saves the sinner from his sins. How? Through the mystery of the incarnation. It's an insight into God's love that he would love us to such a degree, as John says, that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. What love, what wisdom, what splendor, what a wondrous gospel. And I trust that every one of you sitting here tonight, from the youngest to the oldest, have come to embrace God through this incarnate Savior, have begun to thrill at the glory of a mystery of this gospel, a gospel provided, a redemption, salvation provided. It's being published once again to you tonight with a guarantee that if you believe, God shall pardon you of all your sins and bring you unto him for all eternity. Amen. 
Thank you for listening to this sermon from Antioch Presbyterian Church. We are located in the historic Cashville community of Woodruff, South Carolina, near the intersection of South Carolina Highways 101 and 417. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit AntiochPCA.com.